Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Welcome to the show. I hope you're all well. Over the next two weeks, we have a couple of special shows on the new space race. Today we're learning new details about the next stage of the Artemis missions. The NASA program is aimed at putting humans back on the moon. China is shooting for the moon. The country plans to put its own astronauts on the moon by 2030. Not since 1976, nearly half a century, has Moscow sent a rocket to the moon. But they, and many others, are seeking a new first. For this, the Lunar 25 to land on the moon's south pole. Something no nation has done before, and potentially find water. That didn't quite go to plan. Right, I want to bring you some breaking news uh, from uh, Russia now. Well, from space, really. But Russia's Lunar 25 spacecraft has apparently crashed into the moon. But it opened up the door for others. India becomes the fourth nation to safely land a mission on the moon. The country launched a spacecraft last month and this morning it landed near the moon's south pole. It's been over half a century since Eugene Kernan became the last man to walk on the moon. So after all this time, why do countries suddenly want to go back to the moon? It is partly about space exploration, but it's about the commercial potential commercial advantages that you can get, especially when, it, when, uh, when we talk about the moon. That's Tim Marshall, a British journalist, author and broadcaster specialising in foreign affairs and international diplomacy. And his most recent book is The Future of Geography, How Power and Politics in Space Will Change Our World. Tim will be our guide to space over the next two shows. In part two, we'll cover the search for commodities and the prospects of tensions in space. But in the first show, we'll discuss the benefits and drawbacks of colonising and exploring space, many of which reflect issues dominating our economies and markets today. I start by asking Tim what's driving this need to return to space. That there is now a raison d'etre, uh, which is, I'll be honest, mostly to do with profit and and indeed the the energy resources so the difference is from the 60s that it's not really the ideological aspect to it but they found um some stuff that's going to be exceptionally useful for the 21st century on the moon whether it's titanium or lithium or helium-3 and of course some of this is is what we need to drive 21st century technology. So that's one reason. The other one is the massive, massive growth of satellites and the fact that satellites are now, I would argue, part of our critical infrastructure. And they're doing uh, some amazing work, uh, satellites. Um, I mean, people often concentrate on the negative sides of space. Um, the African countries like Nigeria that are putting up their own satellites now, it's revolutionizing their ability to uh, for agriculture um, to be able to tell small crop farmers you know, where to plant, when to plant. So there's, there's this huge growth and it's driven by the fact that space is, is now uh, very commercial and indeed for some companies profitable. Okay, so we'll definitely get back to the critical mineral, minerals aspect yeah. uh, shortly. But I just want to uh, ask a question. How does the space race in the 2020s 
differ from the the space race post uh, World War Two, for instance? I think it is some of the things that we just touched on. If you look at the 60s, it was very ideological. The, the Soviets and the Americans each had to prove they were the, the future. And there's a speech by Kennedy to Congress in, I think it's 61. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space. When he spells it out, he says, we, you know, we need, having had two defeats, which was Gagarin first uh, human into space and before that Sputnik first satellite into space. He spelled it out and said, we need to put somebody on the moon. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. And none will We need to win this race because, precisely because there are people all over the world deciding which, I think his phrase was, which road to take. We don't really have that now. Uh, I mean, we're all aware of the brilliance of Chinese technology, brilliance of American technology. So that's, that's one of the big differences. It's not an ideological battle to prove a political system is better. Second, um, <clears throat> I would argue is how central uh, private enterprise is to the space race. Not, not just the Americans, but across the world, you know, France, Italy, China, UK. Um, that, of course, there was always commercial companies connected, let's say to NASA, in the 60s and 70s, but they weren't front and center the way that SpaceX is, for example. And then this third thing is, is that it's not about space exploration. Well, it, it is partly about space exploration, but it's about the commercial, potential commercial advantages that you can get, especially when, it, when, uh, when we talk about the moon. Okay, so back in the uh, 50s and 60s, it was between uh, the US and Russia. Who's leading the space race this time round? I would argue the Americans are. Um, the, the big three are the Americans, the Chinese, and the Russians. But the Russians, as in other areas, look like they may be falling behind. And I think it'll be difficult for them uh, to match the Americans and Chinese in this century for a whole bunch of reasons, which are mostly economic, but there are others. So th those are the big three. Um, and, and behind them, some distance behind them, there's a second tier of, of leading space powers, India, Britain, uh, Germany, Italy, France, UAE, Israel. Um, there's actually, I think many people are surprised when they learn there's actually 80 countries who have a presence in space now. And that's because of the, the, the cost of satellites has come down so much. But, um, you know, the, the second tier is a long way behind the top tier. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Three, two, one, release. Tonight, a moment 17 years in the making. Ignition. Good rocket motor burn. Richard Branson, more than 50 miles above the Earth's surface, weightless, becoming the first person to fly to space aboard his own spaceship. And seven, six, five, four, command engine start, two, one. And two separate and 
different. We are watching history. We've had the likes of SpaceX, Blue Origin, yeah. already uh, go into space. And how are they changing the game or how are they shaping the game? By innovation and doing things quicker than, let's face it, the state often does. Um, you know, SpaceX have pioneered reusable rockets. So the first stage of the rocket, they actually bring it back down, land it and use it again and again. Uh, I think Musk said something along the lines of, you know, every time I used to see um, half a, a $500 million worth of metal crashing back to Earth, I used to think, why are we doing this? And now it doesn't usually crash back down to Earth, they land it. They've even landed two simultaneously. That, that's one reason. Um, the commercial companies are also the ones that have pioneered pioneered the um, microsatellites. A lot of satellites that go up now are, are the size of a Rubik's cube. So you can get a country like Nigeria, which makes its own cube satellites. You can put 20 of them in a rocket. You can then share the costs with five other countries that are putting up something similar in a thing that's already cheaper because the part of the rocket comes back down. So that's opened up space to uh, a lot more companies. And then there's the, the joint enterprises, both the Chinese and the Americans uh, are doing, not with each other, I hasten to add, <laughs> that's banned by Congress. Um, but you, you, you've got some of the big Chinese companies, which let's face it, are, are much more closely controlled and connected by the state than their American equivalents. But then nevertheless, there are joint ventures. And in America, there are these joint mentions. You mentioned at, at the beginning, um, Americans going back to the moon. Yeah, they, they aim to be there by 2026. And uh, SpaceX will be a big part of that. And then going through the rest of the decade, as they begin to have the rudimentary space base on the moon that they want, uh, Blue Origins will also be involved in that. Okay, so the next rocket that sends humans to the moon will probably be provided by a private company rather than the government. Well, <clears throat> there's NASA have got their own um, super heavy lift rocket. Uh, SpaceX have got um, Falcon 9 heavy lift and Blue, uh, I always call them Blue Horizon. I've got this fixed in my mind. <laughs> That's Blue Origin. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, Bezos's lot, shall we say. They're, they're working on the lander. So between them, yes, it'll be NASA hand in hand with private enterprise that get them up there, get them to then uh, circle the moon and then bring them down onto the moon. It's going to be a real conglomerate. And a big partnership just announced between NASA and SpaceX in the future of moon exploration. NASA chose Elon Musk's private company to build the next generation lunar lander. SpaceX beating out two other contenders for this nearly $3 billion contract. And in fact, there's quite a lot of European uh, involvement and, and other countries. The Canadians, for example, I think uh, I think it's the Canadians working on the robotic arms. Um, I think it's the Italians that are doing something for the living quarters. You know, there's, there's lots and lots of countries involved in, in this joint enterprise. Wow. So, like you say, there's a lot of countries involved, which I presume means there are benefits and drawbacks for this increased yeah. uh, race for space. 
Yeah, if you want high risk, it doesn't get much higher and more risk, <laughs> much riskier. Yeah, so should we start with the benefits? I mean, what are the benefits of increased space exploration and colonisation? I think the legion. Um, let's start um, as low down as possible, low Earth orbit, um, which is where a lot, most of the satellites go. As I said, they, they are revolutionising agriculture, including in the developing world. Um, also, the African countries have got together within the African Space Agency, which is within the African Union. Um, they are trying to uh, bring together the African economies. And to do that, you need to connect Africa's roads and, and rail network. And they're using the satellites to you know, plan exactly where they should be. Uh, building because of course if you know if you get it wrong and you have to suddenly go around a bit of a mountain that the rock is harder or whatever you know your costs are going up they are planning uh, big time um, and as I said for the agriculture that's very positive um, we are working together many countries at um, offsetting the dangers of space for example uh, they've already deflected one asteroid as a test that's all it was just a test and it was a very very long way away and it was only a very small asteroid to the sort of don't look up um type of asteroid which would be a planet killer but they have tested and proved you can deflect an asteroid so that's i would argue <laughs> that's positive um just last month the very first packet of energy was beamed down from a small panel in space down to earth now it would barely light a light bulb, but that's not the point. It's proof of concept. Oh my God. Gosh, we got it, guys. <laughs> yeah. This video captures a moment some have compared to Alexander Graham Bell's first telephone call. There we go, there we go. A microwave beam of energy sent directly from a satellite in space and received on Earth by scientists from Caltech. Because at the moment, um, you can only operate your solar panels at night, excuse me, <laughs> during the day, then they're useless at night. And we don't have the batteries yet, which can store any excess and then use it during the night. They haven't been invented yet. This proof of concept suggests that over several years, we will be able to build huge fields of solar panels in space. Of course, there's no night and day there. So you can have that energy coming down 24 seven, 365 days a year and you can direct it wherever you want, let's play, say to developing countries that struggle with electricity supply. I think that's pretty positive. It's also green-ish. Um, moving further up, um, the International Space Station and the things that will replace it, there will be, continue to be a lot of medical experiments that take place there, and they have been of great benefic um, benefit to humankind, because you can do experiments in space that you simply can't do on Earth because of zero gravity. And then all the way up to the moon. And this is where it might get controversial, but you know they have found titanium. They do know that silicon is there. They do know that lithium is there. They, they, they've proven helium-3 is there. So take the first, uh, the, just the metals. These are the metals that we need to build the batteries for our electric cars that go into uh, the giant uh, wind turbines, et cetera, et cetera. It's, well, it's finite on the moon as the same as it's finite on Earth, but there's a lot of it on the moon. So if we can make it economically viable, and everybody's working on this, get there, mine it, bring it back, A, you're not despoiling the Earth, and B, you're guaranteeing your supply. 
for the 21st century technology. I'll end with the, the, the more, far more theoretical one. Helium-3 is in the water ice. Uh, there are tens of millions of gallons of water ice at the south pole of the moon. The Chinese scientists have worked out that there is enough helium-3 that if, and this is the if, if we can crack nuclear fusion, and an AI may well accelerate that, then they reckon that there's enough helium-3 to power Earth's energy needs for 10,000 years. And this is clean energy because helium-3, unlike helium-4, uh, can produce radiation-free nuclear power. That's another of the big draws. But everything that we've just talked about here is um, has yet to be done and the, 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 the economics of it have yet to be really discovered. You know, how are you going to turn a profit? But, you know, as you'll know in, in your world, the economic history is littered with um, failures, but it's also littered with big companies realizing they have to spend X amount of money on this project. Because if they don't, and their competitors do, and it turns into the big one, they're screwed. And that's why so many companies are involved. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. Okay, so we're just about to go into the drawbacks, apart from one of them being oh, economic yes. and a lot of it theoretical. What are the drawbacks? Um, <clears throat> first come, first served. Uh, some people might think that's fair. Um there's a finite amount of space for, in low Earth orbit. I mean, it's a big place, but Musk's putting up another 10,000 satellites this decade, the Chinese likewise. And at some point it becomes so crowded that there won't be any space left. I don't mean space space, I mean low Earth orbit <laughs> room. And so the developing countries which are not yet space powers, and that's two thirds of the world are not yet in space, um, they're blocked out. I think that's negative. I wish there, would, there should be new treaties drawn up talking about the common good and the commons of the space because the laws are well out of date. That's one thing. Second, yeah, every time you put a rocket up, you are polluting the planet massively. There's like a, a seriously an Olympic sized swimming pool worth of petrol, shall we say, that is burnt every time you go up. And there's a lot of rockets going up. Um, so that, that, that's negative. The, the, the militarization of space is, is gathering pace. Um, the, our, our, the potential for losing our satellites on mass through various events, including war in space, which is very unlikely, but if it did happen, they could get this cascade effect of, of all the satellites hitting each other, which, as I argue, it's critical infrastructure. We really don't want our critical infrastructure going down. There is a massive temptation to put lasers on satellites for defensive purposes only. Um, there's dual use technology up there now, which could threaten our satellites, which have our nuclear early warning systems in them. So that, that's all negative and again, needs new laws. Um, and then we, if we want to get to the moon, there's um, some people, um, I speak with and they say we don't it'd be disgusting and disgraceful to despoil the moon the way we've despoiled earth I, I just don't agree um you know I like the moon I like looking at it there it is and I'm absolutely certain that if there's all sorts of mining going on there it'll still look like it does now from here so I actually I'm not bothered if we despoil I would far rather despoil the moon 
than to spoil here. Um, well, I was, I was going to say, we were looking at negatives. I just thought of another positive. I do believe we need planet B as an escape route. I also believe it's inevitable because it's our future. And I know that because I've looked at our past. When did we ever stop exploring? It is in our nature. We are going to go there. Well, we are going there, 2026. Uh, the Chinese have plans for a base, 2028. Probably ambitious. Uh, we're going, but let's go there as sensibly as possible. To get from the uh, to get from the surface of the Earth to the Moon takes massively more fuel than getting from the Moon to Mars. Even though Moon to Mars is, you know a hundred times further away. And that's of course because of gravity. You don't need that massive thrust. You need much, much less fuel, which you can probably make on the moon anyway, from, from the hydrogen. So it is absolutely a stepping stone. Um, and also we can learn lots of the things that we're going to need on the moon while we develop our robotics. Um, and I, I think that it's more sustainable to do the lily pad on, onto Mars. I think I would I think it's easier to make our mistakes on the moon than it is to make them on Mars. Thanks for listening to part one. Part two will be released next Thursday and it's all about tensions in space and the race to control commodities. I liken it to the Klondike gold rush. You know, nobody stopped as they were scrambling across the the, uh, the, the, the ice with their pickaxes to say, actually, hang on, hang on a minute, let's just uh, take this slowly and um, how big's your pickaxe well okay i won't have a bigger one no no you just get there and i'm afraid that's what's going on now well that was the show we very much hope you enjoyed it if you want to find out more please head to schroders.com forward slash insights and we're endeavoring to record as many of these shows in the studio on video and if you want to watch them in their full unabridged version uh, then go to schroder's youtube channel if you want to get in touch with us it's schroder's podcast at schroders.com and remember you can listen subscribe and review the investor download wherever you get your podcasts new shows drop every thursday at 5 p.m uk time but above all keep safe and go well cheers the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested past performance is not a guide to future performance the information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy.